This morning we are talking about 1 Corinthians 13, uh, the famous love chapter from 1 Corinthians 13, a chapter that I'm sure almost everybody in this room has read or has heard recited, maybe at a wedding. So as I was preparing for this week, I asked my kids if they could define love. Uh, What does love mean if they had a definition? And as as I talked with them, my oldest daughter, who is 11 years old, said, well, I don't want to just quote Olaf from Frozen. And uh, I was having a hard time remembering what it was that Olaf said, how he defined love. So I thought instead of my paraphrasing it for you this morning, I would let you hear it from Olaf's own mouth. So here's Olaf on love. So where's Hans? What happened to your kiss? I was wrong about him. It wasn't true love. But we ran all the way here. Please, Olaf, you can't stay here. You'll melt. I am not leaving here until we find some other act of true love to save you. Do you happen to have any ideas? I don't even know what love is. That's okay. I do. Love is putting someone else's needs before yours. Like, you know, how Kristoff brought you back here to Hans and left you forever. Kristoff... Loves me? Wow, you really don't know anything about love, do you? Olaf, you're melting. Some people are worth melting for. You're just maybe not right this second. Well, Olaf is a wise snowman. His definition of love, whether he knows it or not, is a biblical definition. What does he say? Love is putting someone else's needs ahead of your own. That comes straight from Philippians chapter 2. Don't only think about your own interests, but also the interests of others. In humility of mind, consider other people as better than yourself. That reflects the love of God that we see in the Scripture. Now, I think often, particularly in our culture, when we think of love, we think of one of two things. Uh, Often, if you look at television shows or the internet, uh, love is lust, right? That's how it's often defined as sort of a a physical feeling of attraction or lust toward another person. Another way that love gets defined is by just sort of a mushy sentimentality. It's kind of a, a fuzzy, warm feeling that I have toward another person that may or may not manifest itself in any sort of positive action toward that person. It's just kind of warm, fuzzy. So we think about things like precious moments and and babies uh, who are angels flying around and saying nice things about love or just sort of this sentimentality. But biblically, love is is much, much closer to what Olaf says it is. It is this attitude that says, I'm going to put the needs of somebody else ahead of my own. Think about the first Bible verse that you probably learned, John 3, 16. For God so, what, loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The love of God is not simply a warm, fuzzy feeling. The love of God is not something that seeks to take from us, but instead the love of God says, I will give to you the most precious thing that I have, my son, so your need can be met to be close to me, to have eternal life with me. John 15, 13, what does Jesus say? Greater love has no man than this, than that he what? Lay down his life for a friend. 
All right, so biblically, as we look at love, that's what it is, is it's the same attitude that motivated God then to give Jesus on our behalf. That's what love is. It places the needs of another person above our own. Now, as we've looked through the book of 1 Corinthians over the course of the last semester or so, you may have noticed that the Corinthian church had a hard time with love. They had a hard time putting the needs of somebody else above their own needs. And so within the Corinthian church, you have people who are suing each other when they feel that their rights are violated. When they celebrated the Lord's Supper, this wonderful celebration and remembrance of the death of Jesus Christ, even in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, they were being selfish. They were doing it in a way that was concerned with status and they divided rich from poor, even in that most sacred memorial of Jesus' death. In chapters 12 through 14, uh, and we're right smack in the middle of that section, what we see is that the Corinthian church was actually fighting and drawing up divisions amongst each other based on spiritual gifts. So God, through the Spirit, had moved in and given them spiritual gifts with which they could serve the church. So some could teach, some could speak in tongues, some could prophesy, some served, some could share the gospel. And they had these wonderful gifts designed to edify the church and share the gospel. And yet, they were using those spiritual gifts as a way to enforce their own status and make themselves feel superior to other people. And so the Spirit was at work in the Corinthian church, but their hearts were still selfish. They were still living in keeping with their culture. Their culture, which in many ways is like our own, which said the strongest need to clamber to the top and push the weaker ones to the bottom. And even in their spirituality, even in the way they served God's people, they were not full of the love of Jesus Christ. And so over and over again, Paul rebukes them and exhorts them to be full of the love of Jesus. And throughout chapter 13, what he's ultimately going to say is this, none of our service to God matters at all from an eternal perspective if it is not characterized by the love of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. None of our service to the church matters at all if it's not characterized by the love of Jesus Christ because the love of Jesus Christ is at the center of God's character and at the center of the gospel. And if the point of our ministry and the point of our service is to proclaim his character, then if we serve or we teach or we encourage or we evangelize without love. It doesn't count for anything. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says this, that love makes our ministry matter. He's not talking just about vocational ministry. He's not talking to primarily pastors, missionaries, or people along those lines. He is talking to the church, and he says, church, everybody here has been given gifts. The Spirit is among us and has delegated gifts to the body of Christ. Blake talked about that last week. And so there are all types of spiritual gifts that you and I have with which we can contribute to the life of the church to build people up so they can know God better, so we can go out into the world and share the good news that Jesus died and rose again for us. That's why we've been given those gifts, and they are intended to reflect not only what we can do, but who God is and what he has done. And so our ministry and our service, when we give, when we teach, when we lead, 
when we proclaim the gospel, Paul says, we can do all of that brilliantly. But if at its core, our goal or our motivation is so people notice us or to put others in their place or to get something for ourselves, and he says it doesn't matter. It's all show with no eternal value. But when we are full of the love of Jesus Christ, when we allow the Spirit not only to produce gifts in us, but to transform our character into God's love, then our church has an impact that not only resonates through our community, but resonates into eternity as men and women see the character of God and the love of Jesus Christ, and they are drawn to Him. That's 1 Corinthians 13. It is not primarily a passage about romantic love. It's primarily a passage about how you and I relate to one another in the church and to our neighbors and to our family and to those around us who need to know the love and the mercy of God who reach toward us in love. So Paul begins in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1, saying this, without love our gifts don't matter. Look at verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Let me pause right there. Uh, That first verse is maybe the most shocking verse in the entire chapter. And the reason is this, because you remember last week when Blake talked about tongues, one of the things I, I believe he said is that tongues were highly coveted among the early church. Tongues were viewed as this gift that separated kind of the men from the boys. Everybody wanted the gift of tongues because they believed through the gift of tongues there was this special manifestation of God's presence where they could speak in languages that were not their own, where they could praise God in ways that were new and communicated that he was among them. So everybody wanted that gift And as a result, they were fighting amongst themselves to try to get that gift. Maybe even some were trying to muster up that gift. And Paul begins in verse 1 and he says, Even if, even if I have all the tongues of men and even the tongues of angels, even if I can speak every human language, and even if I can speak with the language of heaven itself, but I don't have love, you know what I am? I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's just noise. This morning as I listened to the worship band and sang along, I thought about Betsy playing the drums and I thought, you know, there's a way that she could play that would not contribute to the harmony and direction of the band, isn't there? What if this morning she had said, you know what, I just discovered this new cymbal and she just rode that cymbal the whole time, bang, 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 bang. What would happen? None of us would hear the song, right? Now we'd notice Betsy, but not necessarily in a good way. What's going on there? Boy, she can play the cymbal. And it's loud, but it doesn't fit what we're trying to do. That's what Paul says we are if we use our spiritual gifts apart from love. It's possible to give a gift to somebody not because you love them, but because you want to make a statement, isn't it? I read an article a few weeks ago about some of the worst gifts that people said they received. And some of the worst gifts people said they received were actually gifts that were designed to make a statement, right? So one woman talked about how her husband one year gave her diamond earrings. You think, man, that's great. And she said, no, he didn't give me the diamond earrings because he loved me. She said, we couldn't afford it. He borrowed all the money to do that. He gave me diamond earrings because he wanted to impress his mom with how well he was doing in life. 
Uh, One lady said, my mom always gives me beautiful nightgowns that are just a little too small to communicate that I'm a little too big. It's a gift designed to make a statement. It is possible to give a beautiful gift in a way that actually disrupts harmony between people. And Paul says, when we come in and we serve or we teach or we evangelize or we encourage in a way designed to draw attention to ourselves and promote our own status, he says, you may as well be that clanging symbol because the purpose of our gifts is that everybody in the body of Christ grows and benefits from them. Not just me. The purpose is not that I climb to the top of the ladder and put you down here. The purpose is not that as I set up chairs or teach a Bible study or teach up here, the purpose is not that people go, way to go, way to go, good job, you're the best, right? The purpose is that you grow and I grow and we grow together so that we are more effective in knowing Jesus Christ and proclaiming him to the world. I could get up here this morning and I could wax eloquent in a way that would make you walk out and say, man, Matt is unbelievable. And yet I could do it in a way that also communicated that I didn't care about you, but mostly I cared what you thought about me. We've all heard teachers like that, even in elementary school, junior high, high school, you may have had teachers like that. And we've seen people use their gifts that way. And Paul says, now, if it is not motivated with the love of Jesus Christ, it it has no eternal value. He goes on, verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. He goes on and he says, look, even if you have the greatest manifestation of all of these gifts, you can prophesy, you've got amazing faith, you give away everything you have. How is it possible that you could give away everything you have without love? I think Paul probably has in mind here the Pharisees who would make a show of their giving. And when that plate would come by or when they would walk into the synagogue, they would grab their handful of coins and go, right? Make sure everybody hears it, everybody sees it. I'm writing a big check right now, right? But if I do it without love, Paul says in an eternal sense, it means nothing. How can a person even give up their body as a martyr without love? That one puzzled me when I first was looking at this a couple of weeks ago. And then I thought, no, we have perfect illustrations of that in the news, don't we? Called suicide bombers. Why do those men and women die as martyrs? Not because of love, but because of hate, because of revenge, or because they are trying to grasp some sort of glory for themselves. And Paul says, in the final analysis, even if I die, but I do it without love, it counts for nothing. Without love, he he starkly says, "It, it means nothing. It has no eternal value. It profits me nothing. He even says, I am nothing. In an eternal sense, all of the service, all of the teaching, all of the sharing, all of the giving that we do, if it is out of a primary motivation to make ourselves at the top of the heap, Paul says it has no eternal value. I want to be clear. None of us will ever have motives that are 100% pure. If you wait for that, you will never do anything in life. But instead, Paul says, when I come to bring my gift 
to edify, to build up, to serve the body of Christ. The question is, do I bring this as an offering to build up God's people, to build up God's church so God's people can be more effective in proclaiming the character of God as displayed in Jesus Christ? Is that why I bring my gifts in here? Whatever abilities and gifts God has given us came from Him. You didn't muster them up. You didn't create them. They belong to Him. Paul says, if we use those gifts without love, they ultimately don't matter in an eternal sense. Then he goes on to say, what does that type of love look like? He says, true love reflects the character of Christ. We're going to camp here in verses 4 through 7 for a while this morning. Because Paul lays out what it looks like to love other people. And ultimately, what he lays out is this is what love looks like. And as you look through the Scripture, what you see is that the character of this type of love is exactly the character of God. It's exactly the character of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is that we are designed to reflect Him. And so these character traits that we read are all based around the character of God. Because love, again, is at the heart of God's character. It's why John will say God is love. He is motivated, he is characterized, he is moved by love for the world and for his people. And so Paul says, if you want to serve, if you want to lead, if you want to teach, if you want to relate to others in a way that reflects God, it looks like this. That true love reflects Christ's character. Because in Corinth, they were acting just the opposite. By the way, as you read through these character traits, and you want to know what was the church in Corinth acting like, just say the opposite. They were impatient, they were rude, they were boastful, they were envious, they were arrogant, they were self-seeking, they were everything that is the opposite of 1 Corinthians. But Paul begins to lay out, this is what love looks like. First of all, he says, love is patient. Love is patient right here at the beginning of verse 4. Patience is the attitude that says, I cannot make you conform to my schedule. I will not make you do things on my schedule. I will not expect you to grow and mature on my schedule, but I will trust instead that God is working in your heart and in your life on his schedule. Several weeks ago, I was in the grocery store with uh, my younger kids, and uh, those of you who have younger kids know that sometimes you get on a mission in the grocery store. You want to pick up one or two things, and you've got a couple of kids with you, and you're walking through the grocery store, and you turn around, and you notice they're about 50 yards behind you, right? So you go, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Hurry, 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 right? Maybe hold my hands. I'll just drag you along, right? We'll go like this, okay? And as I was thinking that way and doing that in the store, all of a sudden this thought hit me and it was this. One day our roles will be reversed. (laughs) And I will be the one behind and they will be the ones ahead, right? And when I'm shuffling, how do I want them to act? Patient or rushed? Come on. Do things on my schedule, in my timing. Several years ago, as a Father's Day gift, I got this uh, framed paper from my family. This was when uh, Elizabeth was five, uh, Abigail was two, and Samuel was about five months old, and their footprints are on there. And there's a poem on here called Walk a Little Slower. It says, Walk a little slower, Daddy, said a child, so, little child so small. I'm following in your footsteps, and I don't want to fall. Sometimes your steps are very fast. Sometimes they are hard to see. So walk a little slower, Daddy, for you are leading me. Someday when I'm all grown up, you're what I want to be, then I will have a little child who will want to follow me. 
And I would want to lead just right and know that I was true. So walk a little slower, Daddy, for I must follow you. And then at the bottom is 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And I love that not only because that's a, a real and present struggle in my life to wait and be patient for others, but also because it reminds me that as a follower of Jesus Christ, if I bring my gifts, my goal with those gifts is to help others know Jesus. And sometimes that takes patience and waiting and time. People will not conform to my schedule for their spiritual maturity. God himself is patient, 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. It says the very reason that Jesus has not returned is not because God is slow, but because he's patient and he's waiting because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's the character of God, and it ought to characterize us in our interactions with others as we seek the maturity and growth of the body of Christ. Love is patient. Secondly, love is kind. Kindness is an attitude that actively seeks to meet the needs of other people. Actively seeks to meet the needs of other people. The adjective from the Greek is the word krestiani, krestiani, which sounds a lot like uh, christiani, which means Christians. And so it's interesting, Tertullian, who was a second and third century church apologists actually said that many of the early Christian churches, the uh, pagan world around them, called them Christiani instead of Christiani. In other words, they were so defined by their kindness that that was the name by which they were known. People of kindness. The people of Christ were people of kindness. In Ephesians 2, 7, kindness is paired with grace. And the idea is that even when we were in sin, God saw our need for him and he actively sought to meet our needs. That is kindness. That I look around me and I say, this individual, this group, this person needs the gifts that I bring. And so I'm going to use them in kindness to draw those men and women to know Jesus better. And I pray they will use their gifts to draw me to know Jesus better. And as all of the church does that and all of the church acts in kindness and says everything that I have is a gift from the Lord to be used for the growth of the body of Christ, we become people of kindness who think about the needs of others. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 17, right before he is about to die. Who does he think of? Who does he pray for? Who does he care about and beg God for the most? It's the disciples, isn't it? Even in those final moments, Jesus is thinking of the needs of those men who had followed him. That's kindness. What do they need? How can I serve? He washed their feet at the Last Supper as a demonstration of his kindness and service to them. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or braggy. Those are two sides of the same coin. Envy is when I see that somebody else has something that I want, and I look at them and say, I want that. So maybe I see somebody else's gift. Somebody else is a better encourager than I am, or has a better personality in groups, or has a gift of giving that I don't have, and perhaps has more financial resources. And I look at that person, and I say, I want that. And I begin to resent that they have that instead of me. When I was in junior high, I made a friend who ended up becoming a lifelong friend and I always envied his hair, right? 
Now, it sounds silly. At the time, my hair was wavy and curly, and I had a hard time getting it to lie down and do what it was supposed to do, and I hated it when I was in seventh and eighth grade. Uh, he had this hair that was kind of strawberry blondish, and it always just, he just woke up, and it just did its thing, right? And he was tall, and he had this great hair, and I thought, man, I want that. Okay? That's envy. Envy looks at what another person has, and instead of saying, praise God that he gave that man or that woman a gift for the edification of the body of Christ, instead of doing that, envy says, I want it. There's a reason why do not covet was one of the original commandments, because God knows that when we begin to want what others have, what does that do? It drives a wedge between us. So love is not envious. Instead, love looks at what others have and says, praise God, because I need what they have, not to claim it for myself, not to make myself better, but because they can edify me as I edify them. Love is not envious. Love is not boastful or or really braggy. It's not a bad way to translate this Greek term. Love doesn't look down on others and say, I have something they don't, and so I am better. All of us have known or know people who are braggy, right? When you ask them what they're doing, they tell you how much they can bench, right? How's your week been? Good. President of France called me with foreign relations advice, right? How's your week been? Great. My kids are teaching yours in Sunday school today. (laughs) Fantastic. I have something you don't have, and I'm going to make sure you know. Just like envy, that drives a wedge between people. Love is not envious. Love is not boastful. Love is not arrogant or self-seeking. Right? Envy and boasting are both forms of arrogance and self-seeking because they look at what I want, what I need, or what I have, and they say either I am better or I must be better and try to climb to the top. Instead, love is not arrogant. It doesn't seek its own. It doesn't always look out for its own interests. Again, that's Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, that Jesus was always seeking the interests of others. Philippians chapter 2 is engraved on the inside of my wedding band. Not the entire chapter, but just Philippians 2. My wife and I both did that when we got married to remind us that love ultimately is an attitude that says, I will seek your needs above my own. And that's not just true in marriage. It's true with roommates. It's true in the body of Christ. It's true with coworkers. It's true with your neighbors. That love is not arrogant or self-seeking. Our culture instead says, no, I need to meet my needs. I need to care for myself before I care for anybody else. And I'm here to tell you, Oprah is wrong, people. That the love of Jesus Christ says, no, I'll think of your needs ahead of mine. I'll take my gifts and use them to serve you, even if it brings me no glory right now, even if it doesn't elevate me, even if I get nothing back because that's the love of Jesus Christ. Not arrogant, not self-seeking. Love is not rude. Love is not rude. Some of your translations may say does not act unbecomingly. Uh, Probably the best way to understand this is just it's not rude. It doesn't speak the truth in ways that are designed to cut, right? Love is not like uh, Simon Cowell from American Idol, right? Who would say, no, I'm just telling these singers the truth. Someone has to tell them the truth. I'm doing them a favor. And you go, no, 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 no. You're just being mean. And there's a distinction. 
When we speak the truth, it is to edify, to build up, to encourage. And so there may be moments in which we need to say a difficult truth to a brother or sister in Christ, but we always do it with kindness and politeness, with their best interests at heart. Politeness is not simply about southern manners, but instead using our words kindly and politely as a way of saying, I care for you, I respect you, I'm not going to insult you, but instead I'm going to seek to help you grow. Love is not rude. Love is not irritable or vengeful. Irritable means kind of easily provoked. It's the idea that someone has to walk on eggshells every time you're around. That if someone eats the last of your salsa, you grab the empty jar and smash it against the wall. When I worked at Tom Thumb in high school, one day a customer came through and he said, hey, could you please make sure to separate my eggs from my bread because I don't like when, you know, the bread kind of gets smashed by the eggs and said, sure, well, somehow a mistake was made either by me or by the bagger that I was working with and the man's eggs and bread uh, got in there together. Uh, I didn't know it until he showed back up at the store about 30 or 45 minutes later with the offending bag. And he set it down on the counter and he said, look what you did. And I said, oh man, I'm so sorry. It was an accident. We'll get you a new loaf of bread. And he said, you knew, you knew I'd be back here, didn't you? (laughs) And I thought in my mind, no, that never occurred to me, actually, that you would waste an entire trip and 45 minutes of your life for a $3 loaf of bread. That's what we mean when we say easily offended. Little stuff makes you fly into a rage or just makes you kind of easily provoked and prickly. That's not love. Love overlooks small offenses. And it doesn't, it's not vengeful. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs in a little you did me wrong type of book, even if that's in my mind. Several weeks ago, there was a story going around on the internet about a company that created a product that was just an envelope filled with glitter. And the idea is, some of you saw this, the idea was that if somebody did you wrong or you didn't like them, you could order this and send it to their house. And they would open it up and it would explode and there'd be glitter everywhere for weeks, right? Now what's crazy about it is so many people bought this product over the course of a week that the guy shut it down. And I read an interview and the guy who came up with this said, this was a joke. This is a terrible product. Don't buy this for people, right? But that is the nature of our culture. If you do me wrong, I will one-up that and I'll get back. And that was going on in the church of Corinth and often it goes on in our relationships as well. Love is not irritable. Love is not vengeful. It doesn't try to get back when people wrong me. But it forgives. It lets offenses go. It's characterized by the love of God in Jesus Christ, who even though we offend him time and time and time again, he forgives. And Jesus died and rose again, so God can forgive. Love is not irritable or vengeful. It's not glad about injustice. It's glad about the truth. It doesn't look for an opportunity to claim my rights at the expense of others. It doesn't rejoice when people I do not like get hurt unfairly but it rejoices with what is true, with what is right, with what is just. And it seeks the best for others because that's who God is and that's what's displayed in Jesus Christ. And love is always hopeful. I love the end of chapter 7. Actually, it bears all things, 
believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Another way to say that is it always, always, always hopes. Now, it may be that love requires us at times to set boundaries in relationships, to speak difficult truths, even to pull back from a relationship at times. But love doesn't give up on the ability of God to transform a person's life so they can be more like Jesus. Even if I have to separate from a relationship, I keep praying, I keep hoping, I keep trusting God that he has that person in his hands. It always hopes. It never fails. That's the character of God in Jesus Christ. And that's the type of love that ought to permeate the use of our gifts in the body of Christ. And Paul finishes by saying that love reflects Christ's character and it is eternal. Look at verses 8 through 13. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love. Abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Ultimately, he says, unlike our spiritual gifts, love will go on forever. See, the deal is that when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom, we won't have a need for prophecy because all prophecy will be fulfilled. We won't have a need for the gift of knowledge. You know why? Because you got a question, just go ask Jesus. We won't have a need for gifts of healing, for example, because no one's going to be sick. We won't have a need for teaching because God will be our teacher. So spiritual gifts will fade away, but the love of God will last forever and bear eternal fruit. And Paul likens spiritual gifts to the toys and the things we do when we're children. And he says spiritual gifts have been given to us for a moment in time to draw people to Jesus, to build the church of Christ. But ultimately, those spiritual gifts are about demonstrating the character of God, which is love. My five-year-old son loves to dress up like superheroes. That's his thing right now. Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, whatever it is. We go to the grocery store that way. We go out in public that way all the time. And it's great when you're five. But if I stood up here this morning in a Spider-Man costume, you go, man, time to hang it up, right? (laughs) It's great when you're a kid. Not so great when you're in middle age. Paul says spiritual gifts they will have their time. You say, we don't need them anymore. When we were young, when we were growing, when we were maturing, we needed them, but love will last forever. He also likens our state right now to looking in a mirror. I see God's love mediated, mediated through gifts, mediated through other people. Then I will see him face to face. I won't need that mediation anymore. And the point is this, that all that we do in the body of Christ ought to be full of the selfless love of Jesus that puts the needs of others above our own. Because love makes our ministry matter. As we close, a few applications to consider. First, this week, I challenge you, meditate on chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Tape it to your mirror, put it on the dashboard of your car, and meditate on those characteristics of the love of God in Jesus Christ. 
and ask yourself, does my life, does my service to the church, does my ministry, does my evangelism, my relationship with my neighbors, is it filled with, permeated by, motivated by the love of God in Jesus Christ? And then ask, how can I use the gifts God has given me to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ this week? Is there somebody in my family, somebody in my life who needs to see a tangible demonstration? Maybe you say, God has given me the ability to speak, or God has given me money to give, or God has given me the ability to encourage, and I'm going to use that not so others think I'm great, but so that they can see the love of Jesus Christ and pray for wisdom and strength to love others as God has loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the love that you displayed to us in Jesus Christ. That you didn't just feel warm, fuzzy feelings toward us, but you actually moved toward us and gave us your son. And in him we have eternal life. I pray now that as the spirit fills our hearts and our minds and empowers us to serve you, that our service and our use of our gifts in our lives would be full of the love of God in Jesus Christ. We are grateful for this time, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.